our guest today, Modesto Fiume, who's the president of Opportunity House. So Modesto, if you want to make your way forward. Uh, Modesto was going to be with us uh, back in May, but uh, he had a kind of tragic accident that he has recovered well from. We're really grateful for it. So we decided to have him back this week, given uh, what's going on this weekend, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Uh, it seemed like an appropriate time. So Modesto, thanks for being with us. Here's a mic for you right here. It wasn't a tragic accident. Well, it, was, oh yeah, it wasn't a nice accident. It was a pretty dumb accident. Yeah, right. I fell off my bicycle uh, riding home one morning and thought I had a bee in my helmet. And uh, it turned out to be nothing more than something buzzing around that wasn't a bee. But cr created a distraction so much that I wound up losing balance on the bike and losing control of the bike and going into a curb. And I was laid up for a couple months. But... Uh, and actually, I was supposed to be here the next day, and that didn't quite happen. So I'm happy to be back today, and thanks for having me. Yeah, and in case you're not someone who, like, regularly is, like, a road biker, uh, running into a curb when you're going that fast isn't quite like how I might experience running into a curb on my bike, right? For me, anyway, you get it. It, it wasn't great. So we're glad you're okay. Um, maybe you could start off by just giving us a little bit of a bio. How'd you get to this point of being uh, president of Opportunity House. What's that sure, I, I really, I grew up in Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, and um, I attended a local uh, Catholic high schools growing up, Catholic education. Uh, I went to a, a, got my undergraduate degree in psychology, and then I got my master's in public administration from Rutgers back in 1993. I really always liked helping other people. I mean, going back to the time when I was in elementary school, I was tutoring kids who needed help in math. I happen to be pretty good with numbers. Being good with numbers really helps me today because trying to balance the books that Opportunity has can be a challenge uh, certain times of the year. So, uh, so I did that. I helped other kids with reading. And um, then I coached Little League when I was in my late teens and early 20s. It was just kind of a way of giving back. I always volunteered. When I was an undergraduate, I volunteered at a community mental health center working with chronic, uh, chronically mentally ill adults. So to me, it was a way of life. And as I got my professional career going, I worked with emotionally disturbed kids. I was a parole officer. Uh, I ran group homes for the mentally ill and um, ultimately wound up at the Reading Emergency Shelter, which has since become Opportunity House. So I guess all my career paths led me ultimately to, to North 2nd Street of Reading um, back in 1994. So you've been uh, working at Opportunity House for how long? It'll be 24 years next month. Okay. And yeah, I know. It makes me feel really <laughs> old, too. And so what is the, uh, what's the mission of Opportunity House? Well, the mission, on, what we say our mission is we change lives by feeding, housing, employing, and empowering people to stand on their own feet. That sounds really nice, but in the day-to-day -day stuff, we really just work with people who, in many instances, have had just had, um, through either really a poor upbringing or just through some poor choices that they've made or a combination of both, have really struggled to get ahead in life and, and to become independent or to maintain independence. Uh, a lot of them battle with addiction and mental illness or some combination of that. But uh, to me, a lot of the issues just go back to really lack of a family structure growing up and, and struggling to, uh, you know, get an education and get their priorities focused as they were growing up. You know, lack of, a, lack of positive role models in their lives. So you, 
you might have kind of hinted at this or maybe even, you know, kind of moved this direction in that last comment, but maybe you could be a little bit more explicit. What are some of the specific challenges that are faced or, or what are the, the things that are happening in our community, the, the problems that you're targeting and trying to address specifically? Well, I think that, well, we could certainly speak to the clients, but I think as the guy running the organization, I look at things from a more macro perspective, and I think the one thing we deal with all the time is, and it goes back for years, it's nothing new, is but the perception of what, the city of Reading is like. I think that's a major challenge for us as we fundraise, as we get people who, who want to come in and, and volunteer with us. As I said, I, I grew up in Jersey City. I grew up in the, you know, I was a kid in the 60s, watched race riots. My father was a cop. He used to go out on sniper patrol at night, and my mother would stay up at night just waiting, waiting for him to come home. So I grew up in a, really a high crime community. I mean, if you got, went, off your, went out of your neighborhood, there's a chance you were going to be mugged or, or jumped or something was going to happen to you. Uh, in fact, it did happen on time to time. So I was a parole officer in Newark and Jersey City, Camden, uh, Trenton. To me, those were high crime areas. When I interviewed for the job back in the summer of 1994, someone asked me how I felt about going to work in a high crime area. And I'm like, I thought the job was here because there was nothing I saw driving into Reading and when I, in, when I came into Reading that time, it was my first time I was ever in Reading. I got lost getting there because we had just moved from New Jersey a couple years earlier and I live in the Lehigh Valley so I didn't know anything about Reading. I just drove around. I didn't see anything that was horrible about it and uh, so I kind of chuckled like why would, why would you worry about, a, why would you call this a high crime area because I didn't see it then. And certainly it doesn't exist now, especially around Opportunity House, because uh, we almost have like a campus that we've developed there where we've taken down homes and we've put in gardens and playgrounds and the technology center, we've put up housing. So it really is a safe neighborhood. So that's what I deal with. What the case managers and, uh, and the shelter and the learning center staff deal with, they really deal with clients who, as I said, they've kind of lost their way. Um, they are good people. Most of them are, want to try to do the right thing, but they really don't know. They really don't have a clue how to go about doing that. Um, so that's where we step in, and we recognize that, you know, no one becomes homeless overnight. So it's it's this notion disappeared many years ago that we were all a paycheck away from being homeless. It's simply not true. There are many things that happen to a person or to a family along the way to force them to come to a place like our, like our shelter. But when we, so we have to recognize that there are many baby steps it's going to take for them to uh, get back to independent living. And along the way, there are going to be setbacks and there are going to be mistakes they're going to make. There could be relapses if they're in recovery. But ultimately, our goal is to work with them until we feel that they are not quite ready to move on. And then we ask them to move on and hopefully they come back and I can tell you stories about people who were in and out of the shelter probably six or seven times over a 10-year period who finally got it together like the 11th time. And that's kind of what we deal with on a daily basis. So is there maybe one of those stories or a story that motivates you like on those days when you're like, do I really want to make the commute again or is this really worth it? Like what, what story, is there a story that you could give us that gives us an example? There's probably 20 stories, but I'll tell you the most recent story is a gentleman who... Uh, came into our shelter, he was, came right out of doing maybe 10 years in, um, in prison, and um, he was always very eager to help out, and he was volunteering, working hard all over the place, and, and, but he had an, a long addiction issue that ultimately got him in trouble. 
So we were given them a small stipend to help out around the place, around, around the agency, and um, ultimately I offered him a job. And because he was in recovery, he was doing the right thing, and I said to him, I said, Edward, when you get this job, and I, I'm not going to use the exact words I use because I'll clean it up here, we're in church, but I'll say, don't, I, said, <laughs> I said, don't mess this up. When you get your first paycheck, don't disappear and not show up for work the next day. Well, Edward, we hired Edward, and uh, lo and behold, he was working in our child care center, kind of doing maintenance, just cleaning up. And the director down there was helping. She's a very caring individual, not just for the kids, but for all of our clients. And she took him to open up a bank account. And below and behind, so when he got his first paycheck, he was supposed to go um, and open up, you know, and deposit money into the account with her. But of course, the paycheck, he got his paycheck, and he didn't show up. And of course, because he went out and he used, he relapsed and um, came back to me, disappeared for a few days, his money was gone, he came back to the shelter and I fired him. And, uh, you know, he was devastated because he thought he disappointed me. And I said, well, you didn't disappoint me. You, you, did, you know, you, you've disappointed yourself here. And I'm not going to have you, you know, continue to work for us until you can get your addiction under control. So that was probably three or four months ago. And he made an earnest effort to uh, really get back and go to meetings, and he's, he kept himself clean for about three months. And we needed someone to help out with our, our, our driver who picks up and donations and makes deliveries for our retail use uh, program. So I hired him back, and he's been, one, he's been absolutely wonderful the past five or six weeks. So he's cleaned himself up, and um, he really, and now he also works overtime helping uh, e evenings in the learning center helping to do some routine maintenance issues down there for the staff. So, I mean, I think he's probably my favorite story today. I mean, there are many of them, but as in terms of the most recent story, I would say he would be probably the, pr the biggest success story, you know, in terms of turning it around, recognizing that um, he, uh, recognizing that he need, really needed to bottom out and uh, before he could begin getting built back up. And that's kind of the story with a lot of the clients. They really, you don't quite know when they, when they're, they really have to reach the bottom before they can start building themselves back up. And that's why we're there. We're there to help them take the steps to build their lives, uh, get their lives together again. So that's a great story. Um, now you guys do a lot of things to help individuals like Edward. Um, and groups like ours get to participate in some of those. And yeah. so, for example, this Saturday, we're doing a, a picnic at Opportunity House um, where we're going to be serving food, cooking food, serving food to the residents, eating with the residents. Could you maybe put that in larger context for us? How does, you know, for us, that seems like a one-off event. How does that serve the larger uh, kind of work of Opportunity House? Well, honestly, I, I can attest to how it's, you have someone right here, Julia. Where's Julia? She's our volunteer coordinator. And she could probably attest to it far greater because she deals with a, probably 120 different groups who come in and volunteer every single day at Opportunity House. And uh, for, for my, once again, from the macro perspective, when we have groups come in and serve meals, and uh, from a financial perspective, it saves us a lot of money, okay? We probably save a, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in meals, meal expense, because we have all these groups, groups like what you folks are gonna be doing this coming Saturday, coming in and, um, and providing, providing a, a food and a great meal, and some some drink to our guests. For the clients, and where this really comes in handy, it's really a sense of to interact with someone. Just, you know, they're, 
I, 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 go, I go in and out of shelter every day, a few times a day. I park in the back. I'm sure Julia does the same. And, you know, tomorrow I'll go in and I'll talk about the Eagles game. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing special you have to have I, in terms of interacting with them. It's just like interacting, stand, sitting up here and chatting with you right now. I don't have a, a laundry list of topics you can talk about or anything like that. But what I, what I can tell you is that they're just people who have... You know, probably have a lack of a little bit, of, a lot of a lack of guidance in their lives. Who are trying to figure it out. So they're just regular people. They're, they're, I, I, I dare anyone in this room to say they haven't come across someone in, in their neighborhood or in their family who hasn't battled addiction, who hasn't dealt with mental illness, who possibly hasn't been a victim of domestic violence or, or sexual abuse. I mean, it goes on and on. These are all issues that I go home to my lovely bedroom community every day, but I know in my neighborhood what was going on. I knew that we had a drug dealer living next door to us. I knew that we had a guy who used to beat his wife who lived across the street. And I get to go, and once again, I'm in suburbia. So uh, I knew about the dysfunctional families because I coached for 10 years. When my son was growing up, I coached him in football, baseball, and soccer. So you get to see all this stuff. They're really no different than, than any of us, quite frankly. That's really helpful because I think probably, if I were to guess, um, while most people, most of us feel pretty comfortable driving in and cooking some hamburgers and maybe scooping out some whatever, fruit or whatever, where we probably feel the most angst is in that moment of, oh, I'm going to sit beside this person and talk to them. Like, what, what would I say, right? Like, I'm used to, you know, could I ask them if they watched the Eagles game? Or is that even a thing? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the homeless people, the, the homeless kind of stereotype when I started, you know, back in 1994 was a, a single guy who was kind of transient, bouncing to and from places. Honestly, today it tends to be a younger, a younger population. We do have some older people who, at this point, they're just kind of, in many cases, their bodies have kind of given out on them, and while they're not actively using drugs or not, act, you know, not actively dealing with mental health issues, their bodies, they're just physically broken down and uh, they don't have the ability to work, and they really don't have any other sources of income, and that's why they're with us. Um, but there are a lot of younger people. In fact, would, would, I just wrote a grant for a program targeting 18 to 24-year-old women, uh, because we're seeing a lot more of those come into the shelter, about getting them into a, a job training program and work, learning to uh, work in a retail thrift store or learning to work in, in, um, in the shelter or at our warehouse, and then getting them, work, hooking them up with uh, possible employers in the community. So we're seeing a younger population. So that, they're going to have the same issues. Uh, you know, the young families here. They're going to be, you know, there's going to be a bunch of kids running around next Saturday as well. So it's it's nothing that um, I, I certainly never saw it challenging. Um, so and I think most of the people who might be in, initially uneasy coming in. They see how receptive our clients are, and they're very thankful. And and I can't recall ever anyone coming back calling me and saying, you know, I volunteered at Opportunity House yesterday, and it was a horrible experience. And I only hear great things about it. And like I said, Julia Julia paves the way for that, greases the path a lot, and and kind of makes sure everything everything works. But we have groups who have been coming in for 35 years doing this, and. Uh, you know, there's now there's second generation uh, volunteers, uh, you know, that kids and grandkids are now coming in and doing it. Well, I, I really appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with us. One final question, and I did spring this one on him last minute, so I um, would love to hear from you. How has being a part of this work changed you? Uh, I don't know, my wife tells me I'm a pretty polarizing peop a person, <laughs> so 
either people love me or hate me. There's no middle ground with Modesto, she tells me. And uh, I'd like to think that as, I've, <laughs> as I'm getting older and, and uh, I, I, can be, I, I am probably a bit more, you know, knowledgeable of, of the issues that our folks face, and I, so I tend to care for them a bit more and, and be a bit more understanding. When I first got there, it was just a shelter, and I was so focused on putting programming, programming in place and identifying the root causes of poverty and, all, and, and trying to make sure we had steps to get people back to independent living. But I've learned a lot with that. It, it's, as I said earlier, there's so many steps, and there's so many baby steps. So I think I have a better sense and I'm probably, I don't, I don't say sympathetic, but just have a better understanding of um, the plight that these folks face on a daily basis. And, and really how, um, you know, like I said, I get to go home to you know, my, my suburban community every day. And uh, so when I come in, I'm, I just look around and I've always tried to figure out how I could bring some of my life into Opportunity House. And I think I probably have done a better job with that over the past few years. Well. Hopefully, this has been a little inspiring for you. If you have questions, uh, Modesto will be around a little bit. Uh, kind of afterwards, you can grab him, or you can always grab Julia. I can point her out to you if you don't know her. We hope you'll join us on Saturday as we serve. We think it'll be a great opportunity to do some good and also to build some relationships with people. So, Modesto, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate Thank you. you being Thank here. Thank you, Robert. Thanks so much. brief clip was from the film Same Kind of Different as Me, based on the New York Times bestseller, which was based on a true story. The film revolves around art dealer Ron Hall, who had a pretty successful career, uh, but at some point his life started falling apart. And one of the key turning points for him was a relationship that he built with this gentleman, Denver Moore, who he met through the uh, encouragement of his wife at a local homeless shelter. And you can see in this clip that he's really hesitant to go and talk to this guy for all of the reasons that probably you and I would as well. All of these ideas about who this person was and what this interaction would be like, how unsafe this might be. But she prodded him that there might be something more important than just what he was comfortable with. And it was that movement that ended up changing his life. So we are continuing the series that we started last week that we're calling Inside Out. And in this series, we're talking about the, the reality that the way that God changes the world is by first changing us. That God is at work in making all things new, but the way in which God is doing that is by making us new. He changes us to change the world. But how does God change us? And that's kind of what we're exploring in this series. Now, I don't want to, I want to be careful. There's mystery here, right? I'm not trying to present a formula where if you just do X, Y, and Z, then the end result will always be this, right? It doesn't work that way. But at the same time, we do see patterns in scripture and in life of ways that change happens for all of us, ways that God tends to work in us if we're open to it. So today, uh, we're, we're going to look at one particular strategy that Jesus employed quite a lot. There were lots of different times where Jesus taught, right, where he said really important things. But there were also times in which Jesus realized that 
What those who were following him, his disciples, his students needed, wasn't simply more information, but they needed transformation. And in order for that to happen, they had to get uncomfortable. And so we regularly, in the Gospels, in the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, we regularly see him bringing his followers into places that make them extremely uncomfortable. And one of my favorite stories about that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, We're going to look in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5. And in the beginning of Mark, we see a lot of Jesus' teaching. He's, He's using these little stories, these parables that have layers of meaning. And he's trying to teach people about the kingdom of God, about what it's like when we're living in the world in the way God intended And so he's telling these stories, and and they're fascinating, compelling little stories. But then he gets to the end of his first round of storytelling, and he leads them on a little field trip. And as we know, field trips can be really great learning opportunities. The beginning of this field trip is a trip across the lake. He invites his disciples to go across a lake with him on a boat, and they run through what Mark describes as a fierce storm. They get through it. Jesus ends up calming the storm, which is, just blows the disciples' minds. But as much as that was amazing, they face an even more fierce challenge on the other side. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, you can also follow along on the screen. If you don't, the scriptures will be up here. Mark writes, So they arrived at the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones." When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to a nearby town in the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region, and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Talk about getting a little bit out of your comfort zone. I mean, there's like zip lining and public speaking, and then there's this, right? This is kind of intense. 
So there's a lot of layers of discomfort that the disciples experience in this interaction. I want to kind of break down just a couple of them. First of all, we know from the beginning of the passage that it's nighttime. So they leave at evening. Nighttime is when all of the best horror movies take place, right? Because in darkness, there is mystery, there's uncertainty. You don't know exactly what's going on. Especially when you think about first century Palestine, they're on a boat, they're crossing a lake, there's no exterior illumination, they're just in the dark. They get to the other side and things go from bad to worse. So they're in the region of the Gerasenes, which is Gentile country. Gentile, these are, these are Jewish people, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, they're not particularly friendly with one another. So they show up in a community where they don't really know the people, they don't know their way around, and the people don't particularly like them, and they don't particularly like them. And they happen to land at a graveyard. Great navigating, whoever was on top of that one, right? So they show up at a graveyard, the tombs. So it's nighttime in a strange place with people who don't like you, and you're in a graveyard. This is going bad really quickly. But it goes from bad to worse, because then there's a guy with demons. And lots of demons, right? Because he says, uh, Jesus asks him his name, and he says, Legion. Now, Legion is a reference to um, the, uh, a group of Roman guards, Roman soldiers, which would have numbered between four and 6,000. And so we don't know exactly that that means there's four to 6,000 demons in this person, but that is the, the thing that this word calls us to think about. It's what the first century readers, it's what the disciples hearing this, it's what all of these people would have thought of. Oh, a legion is four to 6,000 people. They are in this man. That's terrifying. I mean, he's being chained. No one can restrain him. He's got this kind of strength. Oh, and he's naked. It just keeps getting worse, right? So here's this guy who is so uncomfortable for everyone. He's been completely marginalized. He's been put out into the farthest reaches of the unknown, places where no one would dare go, which is exactly where Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip. Because this is where they needed to learn something about Jesus, that they couldn't just learn from his teachings. They couldn't just learn well from listening. They had to experience. They had to get to a place that they were so uncomfortable that they would reach the end of themselves. And so Jesus brought them here. Being uncomfortable is something we work really hard to avoid. But it's also the key place of growth for all of us. It's what we need if we're going to be open to change in our lives. But this is hard for us because we work really hard in every aspect of our lives to avoid discomfort. I mean, think about it. Probably everything you will do today is in some way to move you away from something else that's uncomfortable. So, I mean, think of it Netflix, right? What is Netflix if not a really great way to avoid the discomfort of having to schedule your life around a program and when someone else decides it should air? And not to mention, then you get to avoid all of those annoying things that kind of cut into your commercial and try and sell you things that you don't want or need. You can avoid all of that. That's uncomfortable. But hey, there's Netflix, right? And so now we can do it on demand when we want without things that we don't want to see. And you go on and on. All of our lives are moving towards increasingly as, as we can, as we have the power to move them. We move them away from discomfort into comfort. But the irony is, the more comfortable we get, 
the less likely we are to grow. Comfort does not initiate growth. Growth is initiated by discomfort. I think about this in our life. One of the, the moments that was most important in my growth as an individual, even to this day that I reference, was the time when we moved from York to Reading. This was about, oh my goodness, a long time ago now, 12 years, maybe more. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have any desire to move. There was nothing in my immediate sphere of comfort that pushed me to transition. My wife wanted to move. And so we, we disagreed about this at some length until we finally reached the end of ourselves in that conversation. And then we had to get help. So we went to see a counselor. We went to see a mentor. All of these people who were wise, who I knew would tell my wife that she was wrong. The problem is none of them did. All of them challenged me to think about why I was making the decisions I was making and where that was going to ultimately lead us which ultimately led us to move and to live with my in-laws for a year and a half to two years. A family of six living in first two bedrooms, then three. My whole world kind of seemed a little turned on its head, which sounds dramatic, right? Like nobody died, no, there was a, but it just, for me, this was, everything changed. And it was difficult, it was a tough stretch. But when I look back at the formative things, the things that really shaped me in my life, that's the first place I stop, right? Like, that's the first marker. When I look back, I'm like, oh, yep, that one. I could point to several things where in that moment, I was in this place of saying, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to try this thing. This isn't comfortable. This doesn't feel safe, but I'm going to try it. This feels like what I'm supposed to do. I think this might be where God is leading. And the result was that I grew. I changed. In many ways, I think I became more like the me I'm intended to be, more like the me who looks like Jesus. Now, I'm not quite there yet. Anyone who knows me will tell you that, but it was that moment of discomfort that was critical in moving me into places I wouldn't go before. otherwise. I would never have gone. Even things as, as practical as starting to take seminary classes. That happened because we moved and we're in this space and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I was like, ah, eh, I kind of like that. Why don't I do that? But it was in the place where I came to the end of myself that I discovered how God wanted to change me and grow me. I love what author Anne Lamott says about this in her book about prayer, Help Thanks Wow. She writes this. She says, if we stay where we are, Wait, am I starting at the beginning of the quote? Yeah, sorry. If we stay where we are, where we're stuck, where we're comfortable and safe, we die there. We become like mushrooms, living in the dark with poop up to our chins. If you want to know only what you already know, you're dying. You're saying, leave me alone. I don't mind this little rat hole. It's warm and dry. Really, it's fine. When nothing new can get in, that's death. When oxygen can't find a way in, you die. But new is scary. And new can be disappointing and confusing. We had this all figured out, and now we don't. New is life. I love the end of that statement, right? New is life. New is uncomfortable, but it's life. This is where life begins. And it's in those uncomfortable spaces that God can begin to grow something new. 
Interesting enough, if you follow the story of Jesus and his disciples, not too far down the road, he ends up sending those students out to cast demons out of other people. To like go around and tell people about Jesus and in the process to cast out demons. I would argue there's a reason for that sequence. There's a reason why it happens after they experience this period of extreme discomfort with Jesus. It's because suddenly their understanding of what it is that God and them, they, are capable of. What can happen as they're walking with Jesus on this journey? They wouldn't have gotten there had they simply stayed where they were comfortable. Their ability to offer freedom for others came from their willingness to walk with Jesus into uncomfortable places. And I think the same is true for you and me. That last week we talked a little bit about the fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed one. Whatever. The, the, these group of characteristics that the Spirit of Jesus is working in us as we allow him to. Most of those things don't happen gently. They happen as we put ourselves in positions where we have to come to the end of ourselves and say, I'm not quite sure how to take the next step. And it challenges us to depend more deeply, to, to recognize the limits of our own capacities and to depend more deeply on God and on those that God has put around us and in the process to grow and to move more towards the people we were created to be, more towards people who reflect the character of Jesus. If, if you want to change, if you want to move towards the character of Jesus, which is what we are saying this, this whole thing is about, that Jesus is calling us to become more like him, we have to be willing to follow him into uncomfortable places. We have to be willing to step out, to take risks, to do things that feel beyond us. Because the new thing that God wants to do in and through you is beyond you. And as long as you only do what you're capable of, what, as long as you only do what you're comfortable with, you will miss out on what could happen in you and through you in the world. So who is it that you want to be? Um, one of my seminary professors, uh, who's also a friend, we, we've spent some time together, he likes to do this little morbid uh, kind of thing with his students where he starts off his classes by saying, what do you want written on your gravestone? And you're like, first of all, I don't want to think about my gravestone. Uh, secondly, I have no idea. Who thinks of that? But it can actually be a pretty helpful exercise. This idea of what do you want people to remember about you? What do you want your legacy to be? For most of us, we don't give that a whole lot of thought. Because when you stop and think about it, the values that we want, probably that you want, talked about, about you, by the people you love or even people you don't know who you hope might show up because you had some impact on their lives, they don't have much to do with the external things that make us feel so successful. Very little to do with those things. It's much more about who we are and how who we are has impacted the people around us. 
So maybe it's a helpful exercise to think about what do you want people to say about you when you're dead? What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want to be someone who your neighbors remember as a good neighbor? What does that look like? Most of us don't feel like we have the time or the energy to be that kind of person right now. Maybe someday. Maybe when my kids are older or my schedule slows down or you know, I, I get the, the promotion at work so I don't have to work such long hours or, or whatever it is. That's not usually how that works, right? Um, it's usually bad, but whatever. Um, whatever the next thing is, when that happens, then it'll work out. Or maybe, if you want things to change, if you want to be a different kind of neighbor, you need to start now choosing to spend your time doing things that are more difficult. Hi there! Hello! I'm like, this, this part of the talk isn't funny. Why are people giggling? <laughs> At least it wasn't intentionally so. That's great. All right. Well, what about if you want, do you, do you want to be remembered as a person who was gracious and forgiving? Well, that begins now with that individual who you find it particularly difficult to be gracious and forgiving with. That means you putting yourself in the uncomfortable, challenging position of working towards reconciliation now. Not someday when it gets easier, but now. Do you want to be known as a generous person? Well, that starts now, not someday when you wake up magically and you're like, oh, there's a pile of money. Because that, I'm sorry, it doesn't happen now. I mean, it's never happened to me. I haven't figured out how that works, right? You have to choose now when it feels like, I, I don't know where that's, I, I don't have the margins to be generous. Now's the time when you choose, okay, how do I make choices with my resources that feel costly, that feel, make me uncomfortable, but that cause me to depend on God. Maybe you want to be the kind of person who helps other people in their faith journey encounter life with Christ and with others. Well, that might mean having that conversation with the friend or the family member that feels really uncomfortable because you don't quite know how to articulate that or say those things, and maybe you should wait until someday when you know how to say it better, except that probably won't happen. It means taking the risk to have that awkward, challenging conversation now. Heck, for some of you sitting right here this morning, is this? The last place you kind of imagined yourself being maybe a week ago was sitting in a place like this on a Sunday morning. But you've taken the risk to be uncomfortable, to come here, because you think there might be something beyond you that you need to learn. For all of us, there are opportunities for us to take risks, to step out, and to do things that make us uncomfortable in order that we might move more and more towards people who reflect the character of Jesus, who these fruits of the Spirit begin to kind of grow up in. What is that for you? What opportunities exist? Uh, I would humbly suggest, and this is by far not the only one, but for some of us, it means something as simple as showing up on Saturday and sitting side by side with some homeless people at Opportunity House 
taking the risk to sacrifice some time, maybe some money to, to kind of bring some food or drink or whatever, and to spend an hour, hour and a half having some conversations with people that you don't feel like you have anything in common with and maybe learning that you have a lot more in common than you think. Whatever it is, if we want to grow, if we want to move towards being people who reflect the character of Christ, we have to be willing to follow Jesus into really uncomfortable places. So where might that be for you this week? So as we uh, wrap up our time together this morning, um, we typically will do a time of Q&A. If you're new with us, generally we'll spend a few minutes interacting together. If you have questions or comments, uh, we'll give you a chance to raise your hand and speak to that. We're not going to do that this morning, actually, because we want to give you a chance to participate in a different way with something else that we're doing. So we're going to take some time to, to talk about that real briefly. Yesterday, we went to West Reading for their annual fall festival. Uh, fall Fest is this kind of big thing they do on Penn Avenue in West Reading where thousands of people come from all over and they hang out and it's a lot of fun and it's kind of crazy. Um, so we had a booth there and like 20 or so people from Coinos were there handing out giveaways, uh, talking to people and, and hosting this photo booth. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, interestingly, afterwards, we had uh, the guy who was in the booth next to us. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know I took a cheap shot at Rainbow Vacuum Cleaners. This often happens to me. I took a, so I did this, and immediately afterwards, a woman who was with us that morning came up to me. She's like, hey, I sell rainbow vacuum cleaners, and they're awesome. I was like, I'm really, I'm, so, I did, I'm sorry. Uh, but that wasn't it, right? So we're at this event, and the booth right next to us is rainbow vacuum cleaners. I made that crack because I assumed that wasn't a thing anymore. It's absolutely a thing. So here's the rainbow vacuum cleaner guy, and uh, that has nothing to do with the story other than the sheer irony. So afterwards, we're done, and I'm kind of waiting for things to, we, we had broken down our booth, and I'm waiting for them to come and take away some of our trash, and uh, the rainbow vacuum cleaner guy walks over, and he's like, that booth was incredible. Your people were great. It was just such a fun thing you guys did. And I was like, that's, our, that's thanks to all of our volunteers. We had some great volunteers who worked really hard on it. It was a great time. Um, but there's a way that if you weren't there, you can still participate. And so I want to invite my friend Bill to come up. Bill was a part of helping us pull this off. And Bill's going to tell you about how you can participate real briefly here. I'm going to give him this mic. Is that cool, John? Who's this one? Yeah, yeah. All right. Good morning. So it was a really great community activity, and it reminded me of the part of Koinos Community Church. Um, we have our community here, and then West Reading, Greater Berks County also has their community. And today, you get to serve as like the bridge between uh, what's really going on here, what we represent, and what the people were participating in yesterday. And what we did was we did a photo booth contest where we interacted with about 150 pictures, which means a lot more people because multiple people were in these pictures. And I was part, I was taking the photos for a lot of the day. And last night I got to go review and actually see what I was shooting. Most of the time I was just framing, making sure I got people in the picture. And when I went back through and looked at all the pictures, it was amazing how much joy people were genuinely experiencing in the moment of getting a picture with their friend, their family, their kid, putting a unicorn hat on their dog. All of these things occurred. 
And for you, we wanted you guys to be able to interact and, and really participate in this acti activity as well. And what we're going to have you do is, I don't know if you have Do we this. have a QR code now? So I don't know if how techy you guys are, but how many of you are on Facebook like once a day? Raise your hand. Once a day. Okay. That you probably never raise your hand. minimum standard. That's minimum. minimum. Once a day. So you've been there, but we developed a QR code. If you have an iPhone, I don't know if this is true for Android. All you have to do is go to your camera, and you can do this now. You have my permission. And if you hold your camera up, that QR code is going to actually take you to the Facebook page to the album. And the picture with the most likes is going to win an amazing basket that we put together. But I think it would be really great as, if we as a community could really show the impact that we can make and that they've made uh, upon us by liking your favorite picture. You can like multiple pictures, but also commenting and just you know sharing in the experience that we had yesterday. If you just want to find it via Facebook, it's at CoinUs. If you go to the Facebook page, make sure you like it, and then take a look at those pictures. You know, in between the commercials, your fantasy football, and all of those things, um, you can spread some joy, share in the joy, and really share in the community of what we're doing. So. Um, Really, thanks for participating today. I'm going to pre-do that. And then by Tuesday night, I think, at 6, is they're going to be announcing the winner. So thanks for the participation. We had a great day. The volunteers, fantastic job. Yeah. And I will tell you, uh, hidden in those pictures somewhere is a picture of one of the cutest pigs you'll probably ever see. So <laughs> that's, that's a little teaser for you. You should go there. Um, all right. Thanks, Bill, so much. Hope you guys will join us in that. that uh, again, this event was really part of just getting the word out about who we are to our community because we think there's some really cool stuff that God is doing here and we want other people to know. So this will help in that. So we encourage you to participate. Let me uh, say a brief prayer for us and then we're going to move into a final worship song. Father, thanks so much for the chance for us to be together this morning. Thanks for your um, continual call to follow you into places that make us uncomfortable. Uh, even though we, we don't like being uncomfortable, even though we often push back against that with every fiber of our being, um, we also know that that's the place where growth happens. That's where new life is. And so would you give us courage to this week identify those places that you're inviting us to take steps of risk, to step into places that make us uncomfortable, so that we might continue to be changed, to grow, to increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.